Hello, and welcome to the Bumper Bonus Future of Advertising podcast. In this episode, we've got all the delicious goodies that we failed to fit into the previous three episodes. We'll be starting with the second half of our interview with Rory Sutherland. Then we've got some more insights from NMA's Mike Nutley. And we'll be finishing off with Billy McWhinney's tales of working with Sir Paul McCartney. Yes, it's entertaining stuff. But let's kick off, without too much ado, with Rory Sutherland. Uh, to give you a bit of context, he was just about to step down as chairman of the IPA when I was talking to him. And in this interview, he'll tell us what he's planning to get up to next. And if you haven't heard the first part of his interview, shame on you. You can find it in episode two. So, without further waffle, I give you Mr. Rory Sutherland. I'm quite a heavy Facebook user, but the extent to which people seem to use it seems slightly bizarre to me. If I'm going to be nasty about this, it's just that our quality people with, not quite, with rather too much time on their hands. But nonetheless, patently it's creating some value. But the extent to which it's spreading the wealth that it's generated is very, very inexact, very imperfect. And so we've got to ask some bloody tough questions about that, because, you know, it's perfectly possible that the ways that improve our lives don't do much to actually uh, generate employment or economic value. In China, it's a completely different matter. You've got 800 million people with no lavatories. What you do next is pretty damn clear, which is you install sanitation. That involves huge amounts of labour for many decades. You know, effectively, what China can do when, when, they're, when, when, when they're short of a strategy, China has a very simple strategy, which is copy what the US did in 1978. Don't blame them, by the way. They're doing the right thing. You know, what the US did was pretty damn good. It's created extremely good uh, quality of life and so forth. But the US, or Silicon Valley, doesn't have that option. It doesn't have any low-hanging fruit, as Cowan calls it, in terms of innovation, in terms of what we do next. So those are, they're, they're, you can't work in this business, I think. And this is part of my thing with behavioral economics. I don't think you can work in this business without having at least sort of what I call O-level understanding of economics. Um, and I don't, I don't think you can work in this business without sort of tolerable understanding of psychology. And I think that the debates at which the ad industry is industry's representative about human well-being, subjective value, psychology, behaviour, uh, you know, um, things such as social capital, we, we actually could be the part of business which is actually leading this debate. Genu- I genuinely believe this. And for us to sit, sit down and say it's just about brand seems to me a spectacular missed opportunity. Because all we'll end up doing is talking to three marketing directors uh, once every three years about a new television campaign. So if, so being, being very interested in the future of the advertising industry, uh, one of my concerns is I think the word advertising is actually holding the industry back because I think it could be a, a hell of a lot more than that. Yep. If, my, def- my definition of, of a successful agency in five years' time is a company that people come to when they haven't got a media budget. In other words, I want our clients and indeed non-clients to come to us at Ogilvy and say, I've got this problem, what can you do? Increasingly, the problems are going to be psychological or psychotechnological, perhaps. I mean, when I say psychotechnological, there's, there are aspects to technology which, unless you understand behavioural economics, are completely fucking baffling. Okay. Everybody regarded as axiomatic 
20 years ago that the highest form of service was personal service. How can I help you, sir? Perhaps you'd like me to do this. What appears is that, for a percentage of the population at least, actually they prefer self-service. They prefer going online... I mean, to, OK, this is a psychotechnological solution, OK? To British Airways, 15 years ago, it was axiomatic that they couldn't survive without the travel agency business. Because how on earth can we possibly sell tickets to flights without intermediaries? People prefer to be their own travel agents. Particularly, there's a bit of a financial incentive doing it that way, but it's not only that. Actually, it's the sense of control that digital gives you. So I, th I, I think solving problems through you know, psychotechnological means um, is a massive new avenue for the ad industry to, to explore. What it doesn't do, by the way, is detract from what the advertising agency did, which is the establishment of basic brand trust, of you know, that kind of thing. As I said, you know, the difference between the iPad, which advertises, and Apple TV, which doesn't, that, that doesn't go away. Mm. Um, but, but I think there are enormous new avenues. I, I always assumed in my first 10 years at work, well, we don't need to go there because there are loads of other people going there. There aren't. Companies, are, our client companies, they may spend you know, millions and millions of pounds on em employees annually, but they don't employ psychologists in any large amount. They don't, you know, actually the extent, my definition of this business is very simple. It's simply turning human insight into business advantage. And anything you do that's doing that is noble and good. So how would advertising agencies now that they're, they're based around this model of broadcasting a message? And uh, as we're getting digital, there's far more conversation. What's the, what's the next step then to be able to take on this different kind of work from clients? The first step is... At the moment, we're shoe repairers, not shoe manufacturers. The problem with being in that business, as a key cutter shoe repairer, is you've got to wait for someone to come along and say, these pair of shoes, they're, they're a bit broken. Can you resell them, please? Um, or I need a new pair of laces for this shoe. Okay? And what those people can't do is they can't make keys spontaneously. You can't go, oh, fuck it, I'll just make a load of keys. <laughs> and see if anybody comes on in along who wants to make a key this shape. Yeah. We can only operate in response to a, a specific stated client need. Yeah. I want to change the business into shoe manufacturing um, or lock manufacturing where we can actually generate our own insights. Because what we do at the moment is we, we, sit along, we sit around and basically wait for someone to come to us with a problem. And then we, we look for an insight, and then we solve the problem. Our raw material is insights, but we wait for clients to provide them to us far too often. We sit there and go, client, can we have an insight, please? Because then we can... Now, or we wait for, or even worse, we wait for research, actually, to provide those insights. The, the clients, quite often, you know... In my view, is we should, and behavioural economics lets us do this, just generate our own insights, make our own shoes. Just go and say, well, what I know about choice architecture suggests that this company's website, hopefully it's your own client, but if you're greedy, it can be another agency's client, or even better, someone who doesn't have an ad agency, okay? Go along to those persons and say, if you actually change the format of that website, if you created a super premium line so that actually your premium line looked normal rather than premium, framing choice architecture, um, it will make you many millions of pounds and I know this because of my superior human understanding. Now, we've been so reliant on market research, but the fact is our clients have the same research that we do. We've got no competitive advantage over in that case. And market research isn't very useful because it's all perceptual. 
It's basically sitting around waiting for your customers mm. to solve your business problems. Yeah. Well, that's not going to fucking happen. <laughs> I mean, to be absolutely honest, you know, I mean, you know, you're going to have a bloody long wait, mate. You know, because they don't have they, they don't have the motivation, uh, or necessarily, as David Ogilvy put it brilliantly in research, uh, people don't um, people don't say what they feel. Sorry, no. People don't say what they think. They don't think what they feel, and they don't. Christ above. You'll have to edit this bit out. <laughs> Let me get this right again. People basically don't... Uh, they don't think what they feel, they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. Mm. So there are three stages of removal between research and actual human behaviour, which is making the whole thing a pretty exact uh, science with very poor predictive capabilities. This is conventional research. I don't mean, there are people like Hall and Partners, there are people like Brain Juicer, and there are really good aspects of, of, of Kantar, who are out there doing really innovative stuff into everything from eye tracking to neuroscience uh, to other stuff. But the mainstream research on which most of our clients spend most of our money has virtually no predictive value at all. Uh, it also prevents us from, gen from actually, it basically provides us with a raw materials crisis because without that we feel we can't act. So like the shoe repairer, you know, we don't have a leather supply, we've just got a supply of people coming in with broken shoes. And so if we can create, if we can generate our own insights, it's like having access to our own supply of raw materials, a bit like Henry Ford who wanted to create his own supply of rubber to make tyres. Mm. We can create a more vertically integrated business which can actually uh, generate the, the raw materials which are insights. Creativity, by the way, behavioural economics does not generate ideas. That's a really vital distinction. People said, hold on, you're trying to use science here to compete with creativity. Nope, absolutely not. Behavioural economics does not generate a single idea as to how the application of the insights it generates. What it does do is it generates really, really abundant insights into human behaviour and decision-making and attitude, which can then be used to generate ideas, uh, freeing us from the stranglehold that market research has had over what you might call our inputs. Mm. And so I think that's a really, really important thing. It also, by the way, allows us to actually act and respond instantly. If you look at why marketers aren't very influential in business, and why accountants and lawyers are, is the lawyer and the accountant both have an established body of knowledge that allows them to answer questions straight away. I can go to my company lawyer and say, if I did this, what would happen? And the lawyer can say, it'll be illegal. You can't do it. Or mm. go ahead, but don't get caught, or whatever company lawyer, depends on the company. Um, the accountant could say, no, actually, if we do this, what it will do is it will affect this particular blah, 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 blah. And you can go to an accountant just as you can go to a GP, and most of the time you get an instant response. By over-reliance on market research, you've created in marketers a body of people who go, oh, I'll just go and ask. Well, as a CEO, who are you going to talk to for advice? The person who says, do this, not that, or I think you should be doing this more and doing that less, or the person who every time you talk to them says, oh, we should go and ask. Oh, we'll do a six-month rebranding exercise and then we'll research the new logo. You're never going to talk to those people because business doesn't operate at that kind of glacial pace anymore. Now, you've done a couple of TED Talks that have been hugely popular. Um, have you any other talks lined up, anything like that? Um, I'm doing a gig at the moment where you can probably, if you, if you, if you Google the IDM, there's a talk I gave on, on behavioural economics to the IDM, which should be on their website. There's also one very similar, don't watch both of them. Uh, 
I used to I used to make my talks much more original than they uh, uh, oh dear, original uh, much more different than they now are simply because I realised that actually on average their own there's only one person who's ever seen more than one of your talks but the, the Oxford Union talk which is on the IPA website is similar mm. and there is some stuff there what I'd also like to do is to do some stuff on uh, just getting social movements around the thinking of uh, well-being. I've been talking to Paul Dolan, Professor Paul Dolan at the LSE, who's the government's advisor on well-being. And he's keen to establish measures of human well-being that are complementary to GDP, which is, as I was saying, an increasingly mm. bad proxy mm. uh, for the kind of value you're creating. And so I, I would be interested in just seeing if you can gain public acceptance for the idea of subjective value. Because there is a feeling among the public that, you know, that when companies engage in manufacture, they're doing good, honest toil. And when they engage in marketing, they're actually distorting preference, almost detracting from value, ripping people off, etc., etc., etc. It'd be interesting, and I suppose my TED talk was sort of striving at that, it'd be interesting to see whether you can actually get the public to go, no, actually, I get it, I really enjoy usability, and I'd rather have, you know, to some extent, Apple has got that acquiescence, I'd rather have a thing with lower processing power and slightly less RAM, but which is really nice to use, than something that meets numerical criteria for what is good, but is much, much worse on psychological criteria. So could you get the public to say, actually, you're right, when you're dealing with the NHS, you need to spend a bit less money on medicine and a bit more money on, on decent waiting facilities? I genuinely believe that's the right thing to do, partly because health outcomes are partly determined by your belief, the placebo effect, etc., uh, as much as they are by the actual intervention. Yeah. Um, but I also think it is, it is very difficult for people. And one of the things that Daniel Kahneman shows is that our perception of an experience is disproportionately weighted by how it begins and how it ends. And what you've created in the NHS is a body where the stuff in the middle is quite good, but the actual admission procedure and then the wait and then the discharge procedure from hospital, absolutely fucking atrocious. Mm. You'll often be fully dressed sitting on a bed for like five hours waiting for someone to sign you out. And actually understanding what it is that contributes to our perception of a good experience and also how actually real experience differs from the memory of an experience, which is what Kahneman's talking about in his TED speech, is a really, really important facet. I think it's very interesting in my campaign against rail, uh, high-speed rail, which is that the problem with rail is the beginning and the end. When you're on a train sitting down and it's comfortable and you're moving at some speed or other, by and large, that's a relatively pleasant experience. However, the beginning and the end of train journeys is a fucking nightmare. Now, if you look at the contrast with the car, in the car you have um, a form of transport where the middle is actually quite problematic. You get stuck in traffic, you have to stop at traffic lights, mm. things go wrong. But the beginning and end is fucking gorgeous. You walk out of your house, get in your car, start the key, and your first, the first three miles of your drive and the last three miles, mm. by the nature of driving, are usually quite trouble-free because you're driving in residential areas. Mm. And so our comparative judgment of, the, of, of, of our memories of train travel, our memories of car travel, may be completely distorting us as to the true nature of the experience. Yeah. So you've only got um, two, three weeks left at the, as, as president of the IPA. What's next? Um, I'm going to do something at Ogilvy, which 
um, makes his own gravy, which is a little bit of government relations I'd like to do, because I think that... Um, I, I think many of our clients actually can engage in symbiotic activities with government and policy, uh, particularly using behavioural economics as the lever. And this enables marketing to actually regain influence as well, which I think is hugely important. Um, I'm also going to do um, re-engage with several Ogilvy clients in particular to both police behavioural economics within the establishment. So what I'd like to do is have an overview of most major briefs that go in to see whether someone's missed a major behavioural insight, but I'd also like to create an entity, the job of which is to generate insights spontaneously and asked for, and an experiment with the remuneration models that will go with that. It's now five minutes past your lunch appointment. I don't want to be keeping you any longer. You're very kind. Thank you very much indeed for, uh, for your words and your thoughts, and uh, goodbye. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Cue guitar music. Wowzers, I hope you were taking notes there. I particularly love Rory's key cutter analogy. Absolute genius. Uh, next, we've got the second half of our interview with NMA's editor-in-chief, Mike Nutley. You can find the first half in episode three. At the end of the last part of the interview, we were talking about interactive TV. And as you join us here, Mike's about to give us some more insight into the possibility it holds. Take it away, Mike. The, mo the thing we're most interested in at NMA is um, social TV, social, social stuff around, around TV. And, and this really came home to me last year at, um, at MIP TV in Cannes. I was, I was chairing a panel there and they had a guy called Kevin Slavin who runs, um, who runs a company called Starling. And, and he'd, done some, he'd, he'd done some work for MTV on a show called The Hills where... If you, where if you were watching the show online, you could you could send messages into the show, comments into the show, and you could, um, and and the, and the comments would appear on the screen, and other people watching online could click on those comments if they liked them, and if you if they were clicked on, they got bigger and stayed on the screen longer, and if they weren't clicked on, they shrank down. So he was encouraging people to engage in a in a dialogue with the with the show while it was going on, and then they. Then they they for the for the omnibus edition, um, they used the the online version. So all the comments were popping up on the screen all the time while while you were watching it on TV. It wasn't real time, but it was still you could see what how people and so and and, and Kevin's kind of developing this. He's, well, I mean, there are other people doing it, but but Kevin's Kevin's you know you know is you know particularly um, particularly interesting and, and you're kind of out there talking about it. Um, and he's, you know, he's talking about how how to how to encourage interaction in the social space with, with around TV. Now we know this is kind of happening already around around Twitter, uh, and in Twitter, and you know, the, the, you know, half the fun of of watching of watching TV now is 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 watching the Twitter stream and seeing what's seeing what's going on, seeing what people are saying, just being part of that. Yeah, it's like it's like you know. It's almost like when you were a student, you used to sit and watch sit and watch TV with all your mates, you know, and, and there'd be this kind of competition, yeah, to, to kind of to be you know, who can say the funniest thing about what's going on in TV, or the most interesting thing, or make the most you know the most pertinent remark, and and that's that's kind of what the the, the, the people are, you know that's kind of what it feels like with Twitter. Yeah, can you then integrate? And this is this is what Starling are doing. Various other people are doing. Can you then integrate that into the actual TV experience itself, rather than it being something 
that goes on in a separate channel, can you do something? Um, can you do something? You know, actually in the programming. And if you can, what value is what value does that add? Does it does it just make it? You know, does it just make it a more engaging experience? Um, you know, so that so that for the people who are doing it, they stand they stand a you know they they stand a chance of getting better audience figures. You know, people staying watching the show for longer, etc., etc., etc. Or is there something more than that 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 brands can be part of? But again, that's a big that's a big ask for brands. You know, because it's it you know it requires that you you can't sell you can't sell in that environment you've got to, you know, you've got to you've, all you can be is funny and clever and, 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 and interesting and and hope that and on message and hope that people you know respond to responded to it as a kind of a, as a branding exercise rather than anything else uh, you know and, and maybe you know maybe brands can do it you know you look at the, all the fantastic stuff that that um, compare the market did you know, they, you know, they've got people there who are writing those tweets and those blog posts and and responding in real time. So maybe you know, if you if you get if you've got the right people, you can be you can be in that environment, being funny, being entertaining, being pertinent, being on brand. But it's you know, it's a big ask. It's one of the things I've been looking at in recent years is about creating content from brands. So that brands are actually creating their own content, and then potentially people can get involved in in creating it, uh, in the the further creation of it, and the curation of it, and and the spreading of it, and seeing what direction it goes in. Have you seen anything there with interactive television? Not yet. No, no. That that, that sort of stuff. That sort of stuff is definitely happening online, mm-hmm. and you can definitely you can definitely do that. Um, I, I you know I suppose there's this whole thing about about content directing you to other content so uh, and this is a Rory Sutherland thing is this idea of you know if you want if you just want the 30 second ad you know you you you, you can have that but if you're engaged by the 30 second ad that's actually you know that ad you know will direct you to somewhere else so it becomes not just not just an ad for the thing it becomes an ad for 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 another ad about the thing so that you know if it's I don't know if it's a car you know, you see the thing. It says, you know, buy this, buy this Volvo. It's great. Um, and you know, do you go and buy the Volvo? Well, or, or are you? Is, it, is what's actually happening? Is it directing you to something that tells you more about that Volvo? You know, in whatever format, whether it's an infomercial um, or whether it's a website or whatever. You know, it's it's kind of it's cascading, cascading content, and you can manage that. You can manage that journey. We are getting, you know, that kind of integration across platforms and levels. You know, kind of goes back to that idea of using the channels for what they're appropriate for and what kind of people want right now from that particular channel. How much information, how much engagement, what they want to use it for. You know, you do get kind of, you did, you did get kind of red buttony stuff where it was okay if you like this ad, press the red button to, to know more. But that's that's kind of gone away for the time being. You know, probably because red button looks so clunky in a broadband world you know it kind of looked okay in a narrowband you know 56k dial-up world but in a in a broadband world it looks just unbearably clunky um so so you know people aren't doing it so much and, and maybe actually you don't need to drive it within you don't need to drive it within tv certainly at the moment because you know that most of your audience is sitting there with a with a laptop and they and if you say if you say for more about this car go to this website or Google Volvo and they'll and and, and the, the the people who are interested enough oh, I don't want to look at that you know 
will go away and, and, and do that. And they'll do it immediately. They won't. It's not a sort of a. It's not a sort of a uh, sitting there thinking. Oh, I must check. I must check out Volvo when I'm back on my computer. It's you know. It's a much more direct process because they're actually they've actually yeah you know, they, they've got the two screens live at the same time. Michael, thank you very much indeed for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Finally, we've got a chat that's got very little to do with advertising at all, but lots to do with one quarter of the Beatles and former executive creative director of JWT. Here's the wonderfully entertaining Billy Mahoney. Well, one last thing I wanted to ask you about isn't actually to do with advertising, really. It's just uh, you have got some involvement with Paul McCartney and his frog chorus. Uh, I was wondering, could you, could you expand on uh, what exactly that's all about. Oh, well, listen, we, we'll not be talking for another hour. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of uh, friends of mine were, were working with Peter Webb on the poster for uh, Get My Regards to Broad Street, which was a uh, film that Paul McCartney was making. And they said to me, would you like to do some freelance? I said, oh, yes, please, thanks very much. And they said, phone this guy. They didn't tell me, you know, kind of what it was about, because they knew I probably would have, you know, kind of fainted, stuttered, and... So I went to uh, uh, one Soho Square, met a guy who became a, a great friend of mine in the family called Alan Crowder. And uh, Alan said, no, no. And he, as soon as I came in, he could tell, really, I was kind of, I was getting dry of mouth and shaky of knee. And, and he said, oh, God, you're a bloody fan, aren't you? <laughs> uh, I said, yeah, bitch. <laughs> so he sat me down. He said, all right, OK, well, listen, we need an ad for a billboard for this. And, you know, and, and I was kind of truly beside myself. I remember exactly the first time I met Paul in, in Air Studios with George Martin, presented the ad, and uh, Alan had given me two great bits of advice. And he said, uh, one, uh, don't dry up. If you're going to go in there and dry up, you've got to go in and kind of, you know, make your point, say what you think. Don't don't roll over, but don't be cheeky. You know, if, if he thinks you're being arsy, he'll never use you again. But if he thinks you're just rolling over and don't do what he's told, he, he won't use you again either. So it's difficult, that one. And the second one was, he said, don't overcharge. If he thinks you're taking the piss, again, he just won't <laughs> use you. So I sold the second one. By, I, I never charged him for anything. <laughs> but what, sorry, one of the great, great things that I did, you see, you're not going to get me <laughs> off now. One of the great things I, when I was at, when I was at uh, BBH uh, and Paul was launching, Paul did the most uh, wonderful animation for, and if your kids haven't seen it, let them see it, because it, it puts the current, you know, kind of... Uh, style of animation that, you know, knocks it into a cocked hat. He did a little thing for uh, Rupert Bear. I mean, it was a song. It was a yeah. frog chorus. Do you remember, remember the frog chorus song? Well, Jeff Dunbar, Jeff Dunbar, I mean, great, great animator, animated a little uh, uh, piece for him. It was about five, six minutes long, I think, that Amy, uh, uh, we uh, launched it one uh, Christmas. And, and, it, and it was fabulous. It became the bestseller that Christmas. You know, it was a little VHS. I had a couple of other little things on it. And uh, that required the whole kit and caboodle, really. So I brought it into BBH. I went to John. I said, John, look, I, you know, can't do this as a freelance. I need, you know, kind of the backing, really. You know, uh, would, would you be interested in, you know, work out fees and all that kind of bollocks? And so we did. And so, I, I, so all of a sudden, John was very interested. I took John down to uh, Paul's studio in uh, uh, Winchelsea, down near his home in uh, Hastings. And... Uh, you know, sitting and so I'm going, John, this is Paul, Paul, this is John. 
and I'm trying to think well, what's been done before. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, so, so it was kind of you know, we did uh, an album, we did a few, I did a few album covers for him, lots of single bags, no, I mean, all just anything that he kind of thought was in my, uh, you know, he had various people, you know, that he, he kind of had in a, a little box. Do you know what I mean? So I'd, I'd do. The Buddy Holly thing we did every year, you know, because uh, Paul owns the rights to Buddy Holly. Ah, yeah. <laughs> no, I could bore from Britain on that one. I can hear my children sighing already. You know, like, oh, sorry, you haven't mentioned Paul McCartney, have you? <laughs> well, that's brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Billy. And, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. Listen, I, I did. Someone told me, you've got a Blue Peter I've badge. I've got two. Yes. Ah. Where, where on earth is, where did you find that at? <laughs> I have no idea. Because, because one of my when when I was at uh, one of the little things when I was at JWT, I was uh, executive creative director, and it was that guy. It was when the guy John Leslie was in yeah. Blue Peter, and and they were having a uh, uh, a competition uh, for a road safety uh, kind of yeah. uh, poster one year, and and of course they're going, what you know, get me Jay Walter Thompson on the phone, and I went along as one of the judges, and and it was you know it was a great day, and we had a bit of a chat. And it was, fun thing to do really and they they said we'll get your blue peter badge oh. for this and i oh, never no. got it and i've always had you know so i've always felt you bastard you've got two <laughs> <laughs> so don't, don't you think it's a good thing about this business we push and want and da, 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 and it's like and so these are things we haven't got <laughs> <laughs> all the things we have my one last thought because you know hey listen the things i've always wanted to do actually are uh, you know, as a kid, you know, I always kind of said, "Well, I want to play, I want to play for Manchester United, drum for the Beatles, or colour in." And uh, and I've, you know, I've been very lucky in my life that I've got away with the colouring in and managed to uh, uh, drum with Paul McCartney, if not the Beatles. So, so I feel very kind of. Uh, but there's, there was a great line that John Landa, you know, kind of used when he first saw Bruce Springsteen. I'm sure you read this. He kind of I've seen the future of rock and roll, and his name is Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And, I, and, and to you know, finish on, on kind of, you know, the future, do you know what I mean? The trouble with the future is when you've worked out what it is, it's past. Indeed. And and, and, and the, great thing, the thing that always excites me is I don't know what the future is. I don't know what's happening tomorrow. I don't know what my client's going to ask for, what I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing in a fortnight or a month. And, that's, and to me, that's the most exciting thing about it. Yep. Well, Thank you so much, Billy. Much appreciated. All right. Cheers, Dave. So, that's us up to date with all the interviews, and I've certainly learned a lot over the last three months, um, certainly about how to make a podcast. So, the next podcasts are going to be slightly different. From here on in, we're just going to have one interview per episode, plus some goodies, which means that we can release the episodes a bit more regularly, hopefully. Um, You see, we've got a bit of catching up to do. I've been stockpiling interviews, and there's some great ones coming up. For the next episode, we're going down under for a chat with Stanley Johnson, who's the CD of Wonderman in Melbourne, and also he's the man behind the brilliant brand DNA blog. Then we're going to go to New York for the next few interviews. We'll be chatting to Spencer Osborne, who's the worldwide MD at Ogilvy, and Piers Fox, who's the man behind PSFK, and also to BBH's former Big Cheese, the highly entertaining Cindy Gallup. If you haven't seen her TED Talk, I recommend you go and have a look just now. But for now, thanks for sticking this podcast into your ears. And as ever, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at getadditive.com. Cheery bye.